morning. I'm going to turn our attention to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 27, I'll be reading the, the verses from 1 to, oh, let's read the chapter because next week is 28. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramitium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put out to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly, gave him leave to his friends and to be cared for. Putting out to sea, there we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us, and when we sailed across the open uh, sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There a centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy, put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days, arrived with difficulty off Sindus, and as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salme. Coasting along it was difficult, with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near, where, near which was the city of Lassia. Uh, since much of time had passed, the voyage was now dangerous, because even the fast was already over. Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of cargo and ship, but also our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea on a chance that they somehow could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called a nor'easter struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used the supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on Citrus, they lowered the gear and thus were being driven along. And since the, we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days... No tempest lay on us. All hope of being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, only, but only the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God, to whom I belong and whom I worship, and he said, don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've told you. 
but we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as they were about being driven across the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took soundings and they found twenty fathoms. A little further they took soundings again, found fifteen fathoms, and fearing that we might run aground on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless those men stay on the ship, you can't be saved. So the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. All day was about to dawn, and as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food. Today's the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, and not a hair is to perish from your head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then all were encouraged and ate some food. We were all in 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten, they lightened the ship, throwing the wheat over into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach, which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, and at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern began being broke up by the surf. And the soldiers planned to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered all those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for land, and the rest on planks or pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you for your word, which is a lamp unto our feet and light unto our path. We would ask for your presence this day. Help us to understand your word. Give uh, us assurance of your love for us. May Heavenly Father, even in the poor, fallible words of a preacher, the words of life be found. For we ask it in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Um. Those two passages have a lot to do with the sea and ships. I don't know much about the sea, other than I don't want to be in the middle of a storm when I can't see land. I want to be able, if I'm in trouble, to get as quickly to the land as possible. This may sound foolish to you, but on the way back from a study in Asia, we, we four college guys, landed on Oahu to stay with Paul Kennedy's cousin, one of my buddies, and we took a road trip around the island of Oahu, and it took a half hour. And I couldn't get it out of my head. If this goes down, how am I going to get saved? It's a long swim to California. The good news about living in Maine is, unlike California, which is supposed to fall into the sea, Maine is solid. And I can always go south or west. Not a comforting thought, but one that might help in times of trial. You have two stories, and they parallel each other in some ways, because you find that they 
both have certain elements. Let me begin. The first element they have is a God-directed purpose. God said to Jonah, I have heard the Nineveh's, I have seen what Nineveh is doing, their sin is risen to me, and I need you to go and speak in Nineveh. Paul, I assure you, Paul, you will testify and bear witness to me in Rome. You are going to Rome. God directed both of them on their journey. Unlike Paul, though, well, like Paul, Jonah had a problem with this. You see, whenever God directs, he always brings his love and his grace into focus. For the Apostle Paul, he knew many a time when God had called him on missionary journeys and places to go, Paul knew that if God went ahead of him, if God accompanied him, God's love and grace would make the difference in the hearts of the people, in the audience of the people. That's why the foolishness of preaching continues for 2,000 years. My hope this morning is that God has appointed me to be here to bring a message that you will hear, your hearts will be encouraged. If you don't know who Christ is, you may come to know who Christ is, for Christ is the ultimate expression of God's love and grace. He's the one who came to us, for God so loved the world that he gave us his son. Jonah believed the same thing. He knew that when he went to Nineveh, God's love and grace would abound. And Jonah, unlike Paul, was angry about it. Do you know what the Ninevites are? Do you know what the Assyrians have done? Have you ever seen what they do to people? How can you send your love and grace to those people? Hate to admit it. There's times I've said the same thing. You want me to go preach there? You want me to share your grace there? They don't deserve it. Oh. I don't deserve it. Somebody came and preached to me. Somebody shared the good news with me. But Jonah was boiling mad. And he took his own money, and he went and he found a ship heading in the opposite direction to Tarsus and said, Nah, I'm not doing what you want me to do, and I don't care. And you found that there was a storm that arose. Now, I have to tell you, in Hebrew mindset, whenever you see a storm at sea, it is a judgment from God. Let's go over water judgments, shall we? You remember that time there was the great flood where all people were wiped out except for Noah and his family and an ark full of animals. Or maybe there was the time when the Egyptians were pursuing the Hebrews across the Red Sea, only to find that they were destroyed by the walls of water. God has used water as a judgment symbol for generations. And when you're on a boat and it gets stormy, if you're a Hebrew, you begin to think this is judgment. Remember the story of Jesus 
sleeping in the back of the boat in the stormy sea. And they said, how come you do Get up here and start bailing the boat. Come on, we're going down. And he stood up and said, peace be still. And even the winds and the waves obeyed him. That struck the sailors as quite odd. But it shouldn't strike you or I, for Jesus Christ is Lord of all. The judge of the living and the dead. The one to whom we find our consolation because we call upon his name, the name of the Lord, who loved us and gave himself for us. So if you think of water and you think of a storm, you begin to catch what's going on with Jonah. And Jonah's asleep in the bottom of the boat. You know why? He knows he's guilty. And if God executes his judgment... I won't have to go to Nineveh. Have you ever been so determined, so anxious, so angry with God that you're going to do whatever you darn well please and you could care less what he thinks? If you are, your name is Jonah, not Jonah Bissell. Jonah. So he tells them, I'm the problem after they prod a little bit. The best thing you can do is throw me overboard. And as you know, there came the judgment. He was swallowed and in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights. And then the Lord delivered him to his rightful place. How many times has God intervened in our miserable life and caused us to go through a period of time only to end up where he wanted us to go in the per- first place. I have learned over time the best thing you can do when God asks you to do something and you're convinced it's his will and purpose, do it. Don't go through that time of education. Do what he's called you to do and do it to the best of your ability. Paul, on the other hand, has made an appeal to Caesar. Caesar doesn't want Paul. Paul wants Caesar. He wants Caesar's judgment on the issue of the resurrection because that's what sent him there. As he's been arguing with Sadducees and Pharisees, he has made it a contest over whether or not there is a resurrection. And he's hoping when he gets to Caesar, Caesar will make it a, a, a determination about that case. But ultimately, he's going because Paul wants to preach in Rome. He wants the support of the church that's in Rome. He also wants the opportunity to present Jesus Christ to the capital, the, the, the nation of Rome, the leaders of the world. He wants to be able to put the King of Kings on display in Rome. Now, he also wants... If you read through the book of Romans, he wants support to head to Spain. And so he's going to ask the Roman church to fund his mission to Spain. And as he goes north, he's hoping to hit Spain and ultimately Britain and uh, the whole world at that point in time. So he has a game plan. And when he gets on the boat, he says, first of all, he's with the Roman guard, who is part of the praetorium. That's the elites. 
Those are the ones who protect Caesar. Those are the ones who administrate in his courts. And he is taking that journey with a very influential centurion. And as they go, there's a natural friendship that develops, so much so that the centurion named Julius allows him to go into Thessalonica to pick up supplies, to greet the church, to find out how the church that he planted is doing, and then gets back on the boat. Julius probably accompanied him. Why don't you come? Every time I go to church, there's a potluck supper, so come on with me. We'll feed you at least. And when he gets back on the boat, he notices the calendar. The calendar has told him that we're coming into winter, and the last trip from where he went from Thessalonica to Fair Havens was kind of uh, dicey. And he said to the centurion, listen, there's no use in pushing this journey. We can take our sweet time. After all, I want to go to Rome. Rome doesn't want me. So we can enjoy the trip. Because I fear that if you get into a nor'easter, anybody know what nor'easters are up here? You get into one of those nor'easters, you can lose it all. So why don't we take our time? I'm afraid if we set out, we're going to lose everything. But Julius, probably anxious to get home, because you know some of those trips, you just want to get home, said we're going to trust the pilot. He's got more experience, Paul, than you do, and so we're going to go with the pilot. Don't you love Paul's attitude when things start to get really dicey? He said, you should have listened to me. I told you. I told you we were going to get in trouble, and we are in trouble. In fact, they've taken the ropes, and they've put it underneath the ship to try to hold the ship together. I think you're in trouble when you're trying to hold the ship together with ropes. I think it's one of those moments where you say, it's time for prayer, folks. Paul says, no, it's not time for prayer. It's time to eat. Because you've gone 14 days without eating, it's time to put something in your belly. But you'll notice something very important. Before they eat, he tells the centurion, the ship and its cargo and all of it will be lost. But my God has promised that not one life will be lost. And so, let's eat. Did you notice that in the midst of this, Paul does something very familiar to us? There's a formula there that if you didn't hear it before, you ought to hear it. He took bread, and he gave thanks, and he broke it, and began to eat. Do you remember those words? Jesus, when feeding 5,000, took bread, and he broke it, and he gave it. Do you remember when Jesus was at the house of Emmaus? He took it, he broke it. And he gave thanks, and he gave it. That formula says there was some invocation there that Paul made to give thanks to the God who loved us in Jesus Christ and had Jesus Christ the prayer for the protection of the people and invited them in to God's presence. And when the shipwreck happened, 276 lives went through the judgment and came out on land. God has a plan and a purpose for our lives. What you need to realize is that whenever God has placed you in a situation or in a circumstance, it's not there by happenstance. 
sometimes you can find yourself not wanting to be where you are. Paul said we should have taken our time and he was right. There's times when you say, not today, but unfortunately, now you're there. When you're in that situation, you ought to say, Lord, I'm in a situation in which I believe you've called me to for such a time as this. And because I'm in this moment, I need you to act by your Spirit in ways that go beyond me. Here's what I mean by that. Forty days, and if you don't repent, you're dead. The judgment will fall. Isn't that a great salvation message? Because that's what Jonah did. So angry with God, he gave them the bare minimum. He didn't talk about Yahweh. He didn't talk about anything. Forty days and you people are gone because God's mad at you. And the whole of Nineveh repented and came to God in spite of Jonah's message. I just want to pray, oh God, in spite of Al Fletcher, in spite of who I am, I'm offering for you to use me in a way that brings your love and grace into a world. In spite of telling the pilot you're crazy to go out in this weather. In spite of all of those things that Paul spoke against. In the midst of the storm, he prays for them and assures them that they're not going to be lost that God might use in an extraordinary way the Apostle Paul for the saving of those people. So it is that you know who Jesus Christ is. And you have been called according to his purpose. You have been called as a witness to the resurrection and the life. And wherever you go and you enter into those moments, when you find yourself in one of those storms, when you find yourself in a place where you're not comfortable with, or when you find things against you, it's time to say, oh Lord, take and use me so that others might come to see your love and grace and find the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. I think that we as a country are going into a stormy, stormy period. And as we go into that stormy period, now's the time to say, Lord, I don't have all the gifts in the world. You've given me some. But I want you to use my gifts to glorify you. The basic foundation of creation was, as God was glorified, people are blessed. As people are blessed, they glorify God. So once again, we find ourselves in Jesus Christ asking, oh God, glorify yourself so that these folks are blessed. And in being blessed, may they glorify your name. Tale of two ships, tale of two shipwrecks, but the tale of one God who is the great evangelist, who is constantly calling men and women to himself. For he so loved us and loved the world that he gave his only begotten that whosoever believeth on him might not perish but have everlasting life. Folks, you may not be in the storm, but I understood the old black preacher to say this. There are three phases of life You are either going into the storm, 
you're in the storm or you're coming out of the storm. That's life. The difference is who's with you when you go into the storm, when you're in the midst of the storm, and when you come out of the storm. If Jesus isn't with you, then you need somebody to introduce you to him. For since Jesus Christ has become my Savior and Lord, the storms aren't as bad as they seem because he has promised to never leave us or forsake us. And in the midst of that, the testimony we share to the others is if you have the hope that I have, he's able to deliver you and he's able to do far greater things than you could ask or think. Paul had 276 people when they got on shore must have said to him, Paul, I don't know what you did back there, but I want to know more about who this Jesus is that gives you such incredible hope in the midst of such an awful mess. Amen? Father God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love. We thank you that you loved us before the foundations of the world and that you have a plan and a purpose. We pray for our neighbors and our friends. We pray even for our enemies, lest we become like Jonah. May, Heavenly Father, we be found faithful to give of what we have and ask that your Spirit attend to it in ways that goes beyond our abilities so that others might come to know the saving hope that we have in Jesus Christ and be found anew and afresh in your love and salvation. For we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.